Hello and welcome to the new China Research Group weekly podcast. I'm Julia Pamely. And I'm Chris Cash. Every week we will be bringing you insight from experts and fresh analysis on the stories driving the UK's relationship with China and China's relationship with the world. This week, Julia will be chatting to Charles Dunst, who is a Southeast Asia analyst and a non-resident fellow at CSIS. He'll be telling us about his new paper for the CRG on where the UK fits in the evolving geopolitics of Southeast Asia. I am joined by Charles Dunst. He's written a new paper for the China Research Group, which basically looks at the current strategic environment in Southeast Asia in context of the UK's expanding presence. Um, as part of our tilt to the Indo-Pacific, we've applied to the CPTPP, become a dialogue partner for ASEAN and kind of increased our military collaborations. But I think this should really be grounded in understanding of, of the current situation in Southeast Asia, politically and economically. So could you give us a kind of overview of of what's changed in the last couple of years and, and why is this such an area of interest at the moment? Thanks for having me. It's great, to, it's great to be here. So off the bat, I would say politically, the situation in terms of, I guess, governance has really declined in recent years over the last five to seven years, if not shorter than that, you've really seen kind of a drive towards autocracy in the region, whereas even kind of some of the more, I mean, certainly the Philippines, for example, is a democracy, but they've had kind of significant troubles with autocracy and authoritarianism and all of that. And I think you've seen that trend throughout the region where, again, Cambodia, one party state and all of that has only further kind of consolidated its, its kind of the, the ruling party's hold on power. So it's kind of you're seeing a little bit of a decline in what had previously been seen as kind of a democratic resurgence. And, I mean, of course, Thailand is no longer a democracy, kind of. So that's politically off the bat, is the trends are, are away from democracy. Uh, economically, I think it's COVID is kind of over, over overtaken the region in a very significant way. Um, just even before that, I mean, before that, there were opportunities kind of with trade, with the United States, the United Kingdom, et cetera. Um, but COVID is really becoming and kind of remaining a problem. It's doing significant damage. Countries in the region, with perhaps the exception of Singapore, have really limited fiscal space with which to maneuver and the opportunity for or the kind of ability to provide substantial stimulus to keep economies afloat is again pretty limited with, I guess, the exception of maybe Singapore and Indonesia. So mainland Southeast Asia in particular is really struggling after kind of really putting off the worst of the pandemic in 2020. They've now been hit very, very hard in 2021 and it's getting a little bit better now, but a lot of these countries are still being hit uh, pretty substantially. And then kind of on the big geopolitical side of things, uh, I think the pretty much the entire region is becoming increasingly frustrated with and worried about China. Um, I think you've seen China become increasingly aggressive in, in the South China Sea, um, increasingly willing to use economic leverage for political ends. And with the possible exception of Cambodia and, and post-coup Myanmar as its own kind of basket case at this point, you're seeing countries being very worried about being too cozy with Beijing. I think all, all countries in the region are now recognizing the need to balance China with the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, Japan, to make sure that they're not like Cambodia where all the economic leverage is with, is with China. So I, I think the increasing kind of push in the South China Sea and all that is, is actually backfiring despite the fact that the United States the kind of China's main competitor does not currently have a substantial economic plan for the region. So I think that's kind of setting the stage nicely, I hope. An excellent scene setter. So where does China's vaccine diplomacy fit into that picture? 
the bat, I mean, China was able to provide far more vaccines far more quickly than, than the United States or the West generally did, which I think is an interesting uh, microcosm, frankly, of China's relationship with Southeast Asia and the global South more broadly, where China is often able to provide funds or infrastructure or all of that faster than the United States or the West can, but it's often of a lesser quality, which is the same thing you've seen with the vaccines, where Cambodia, for example, got pretty much all of their vaccines from China. They do not work as well as, as the Western vaccines do, particularly against the new variants, um, but they're better than nothing. So Cambodia is now highly, highly vaccinated with the Chinese vaccines. And that, I mean, it matters. It certainly matters for China's soft power that they were able to give vaccines to the region very quickly. Um, the United States in particular has caught up, I will say. Um, I'm not sure if they've exactly caught up in kind of numbers for numbers, but they're, they're, they're getting there. And I think you're seeing an increasing awareness in the region of the fact that if you can choose between the Western vaccines and the Chinese vaccines, you're going to go with the Western vaccines. I think Malaysia has been a very kind of helpful example of this, where I want to say a few months ago, after Malaysia had used kind of their first batch of Chinese vaccines, they told China, we don't, sorry, we don't want it anymore. We're, we're, we're good. Um, because the Western vaccines work better against, particularly against the Delta variant. So it matters. It certainly matters that China was, was first. Um, but I think it actually is somewhat interesting in that much of the region wasn't actually hit too badly until late 2020 and into 2021 which was kind of the time by which the United States and the rest of the West was able to kind of catch up and provide vaccines. So I think actually China's vaccine diplomacy helped a lot initially, but has perhaps kind of lessened in importance since. Yeah, so that kind of brings me on to the second area, which is you touched on individual countries, but which, which countries are most receptive to deeper engagement with the US, UK, the EU and, and what are they particularly looking for? I mean, vaccines is one thing, but is it infrastructure? Is it trade ties? What's the kind of economic picture? I'd say Vietnam jumps to mind as a country that is most keen on balancing. I mean, really not, I'm not saying not because they distance themselves from, from China, but Vietnam in the re is, the, is the country in the region most wary of China. And that kind of owes to history of colonization and the 79 war and all of that. So Vietnam is certainly the country in the region most willing to engage with countries like the United States and the United Kingdom. And, and I've actually had conversations recently with Vietnamese diplomats here in DC and they, what they really want, frankly, is a trade deal. And kind of, I think the UK is on better footing than the United States is here, where your domestic politics allow for kind of actual <laughs> trade and trade engagement in a way that the United US politics just don't at this moment. So they want a clear kind of trade deal. They want a clear economic plan. There's some frustration with the Biden administration has announced an economic framework, but no one actually knows what that means because it's not a trade deal, obviously. So they want trade, they're very keen. I think the more advanced economies like Singapore are very keen on having kind of a digital trade deal, whereas they can kind of establish the rules of the road for new technologies. Um, and beyond that, of course, the, some of the lesser developed countries, I'm thinking about Vietnam here, um, Cambodia to some extent, they want it. They want to need infrastructure, I mean, where where poverty and underdevelopment are the most pressing issues. These are the countries that can't say no to China's offers because whatever China gives is better than nothing. So if, if the United States, the United Kingdom, the West generally can kind of step in and offer some, some alternatives, even if it's not at the same dollar level as China's, I think that would be a strong step. So Vietnam is definitely one. 
that's definitely that's willing to kind of engage more with the West. I would say Malaysia is to some extent. I think Malaysia is increasingly wary of Chinese influence. Indonesia is kind of a little bit of an interesting case study where Indonesia views itself as the kind of rightful hegemon within Southeast Asia, and they don't like being kind of talked down to by either China or the United States in particular. They don't feel they don't feel like the great, those are the great powers in the region. They feel like they're the great power in the region. So I actually think the UK is pretty strongly positioned there to say, well, we don't want to be the hegemon in Southeast Asia. We just kind of want to provide assistance and help and cooperation that can benefit both sides. Um, and then beyond that, I think Cambodia is a little tricky. Um, Cambodia is certainly the most China aligned in the region. Thailand is also complicated. I mean, Thailand is a US treaty ally, um, but of course has increasingly trended towards China as they've become more autocratic with the military regime and all of that. But even, even Thailand is very well aware of the need to kind of balance between China and the West and extract benefits from both. So I think that's a place where the UK could play a real role, but of course human rights there are complicated and it's a hard, it's a hard line to balance in most of the region, frankly, between human rights and democracy versus trade. Um, and then I think beyond that, I'm trying to think of any other countries I've, I've forgotten. I mean, Singapore, of course, but Singapore is a different, kind of in a different category than the rest of the region where they don't necessarily need development funds, um, but they're also totally on board with more security engagement, particularly from the United States and the United Kingdom to help balance China. I mean, they have close ties with China, but they're not, not interested in becoming a subservient state to China or, or the West for that matter. Yeah, so, so one thing that you kind of talk quite a lot about is the, the limits of, I suppose, values-led engagement with Southeast Asia. And with the upcoming Summit for Democracy, there's a real focus on that element of the US's foreign policy. I mean, where do you see the kind of limitations around pushing ideas about democracy and freedom um, which is an increasingly big part of the UK's foreign policy in Southeast Asia. Over the last few days, I've actually met with, with a bunch of Southeast Asian diplomats here in DC, and they've expressed polite frustration with the Democracy Summit. Um, I think they do not appreciate that the Biden administration, I mean, in, in their words, is dividing the world in two and kind of approaching it to the very black and white lens. And I think that goes the same. I mean, of course, the United Kingdom is not, uh, did not brainstorm the democracy summit that's a very much a biden administration thing but even still i think there's a need to recognize that not all non-democracies are created the same in the sense of cambodia and singapore are very different um singapore is a relatively well-run country that has some space for civil society of course it's not a western democracy of course not even like taiwan or japan but it's not like cambodia where where dissidents are kind of shot in the streets so I think U.S. engagement in Vietnam since, I guess, the early 90s, since relations were, were um, re-kind of constituted, is a, is a good example of how to engage non-liberal countries without kind of neglecting values. So what you do is you make it very clear to the ruling party that we're not seeking regime change. No one is seeking to topple the Vietnamese government or the Thai government or the Cambodian government and, and make it clear within that, that you want improvement within the existing regime rather than trying to change the regime itself. And I think you can see a very, two divergent approaches here and one has worked and one has not. The Vietnamese approach has worked. We've made it, the United States has made it very clear to Vietnam that they do not want regime change. They just want modest improvements within the regime among other whole types of cooperation. And that's generally worked. I mean, there's been some moderate improvement on human rights 
I think particularly when it comes to, to LGBT issues, women's issues, and even if religious freedom and, and the treatment of ethnic minorities does lag behind for sure. But then on the other on the other side of the coin, you have Cambodia, where the United States has kind of I'm not going to say push regime change because that's not necessarily true, but there have been statements from top congressional leaders that make the Cambodian government think the United States is pushing regime change, which has basically led any kind of human rights cooperation or any human rights softening to become a total non-starter. So I think the UK is, I think, in a pretty similar spot here where as long as you can communicate to leaders of these countries that we're not seeking to overthrow you, you can achieve some human rights and democracy improvements within those systems at the same time as kind of providing security and economic cooperation. So that would be my general approach is the, the regime change thing is a total non-starter and strategically kind of a total, uh, strategically not a wise step. And also I think as the Cold War era probably teaches us that regime change never goes as smoothly as, as we think it might. So, so far you've kind of talked a lot about bilateral relations, so relations with individual countries, um, what those individual countries are interested in. But, you know, one of the UK's main diplomatic wins so far has been becoming the first dialogue partner to ASEAN for, I think, 40 years. So but there's been quite a lot of discussion about the effectiveness of ASEAN, the, the role it plays in Southeast Asia. What's what's the current kind of situation there? I'll be the first to admit is not hugely effective as a place that I actually get things done. But ASEAN members take it very seriously. Uh, it, they feel that ASEAN should be the central place by which to kind of negotiate the region's future. Um, they don't want that dictated at a higher level. They don't want that dictated in bilateral relations because, of course, they're, they're mostly, I mean, economically, they're smaller countries than the United States or the United Kingdom or maybe not the United Kingdom at this point, but in the United States and in China. And when they're negotiating with these kind of big great powers, they have much more leverage as a united bloc than they do one-on-one. -on -one. So even if ASEAN is not a place that's necessarily gonna get a ton done kind of in a very concrete way, I still think it's a huge win for the UK to be named kind of a new dialogue partner, just because in Southeast Asia, I mean, it's, it's cliche, but it's true, showing up is 80% is of the battle. Um, and when the UK can basically make it, the UK has made it very clear to Aussie on that they want to be a close partner. I think the UK, as much as as much as the UK has come kind of somewhat joined on the US side and the US-China competition, I think ASEAN member states do not see the UK in the same light as they see the United States. I think they see the UK as a less politically sensitive partner, uh, as still, still one that they kind of that, that will not anger China the same way that the US does. So even if ASEAN is not a place that's gonna actually get a ton done, I think having active engagement there is a really important signaling mechanism that will actually improve multilateral engagement and bilateral engagement for that matter. And, and do you think the same, so we've, we've touched on diplomacy, we've touched on the importance of values and engagement, um, but obviously trade is perhaps the main area um, the Southeast Asian countries might be interested in. CPTPP, how, how important does that rank within, within the wider trade picture? I think it's hugely important because countries in the region or leaders in the region 
spent a lot of political capital to get into it. Um, I mean, not only in Southeast Asia, also, I mean, Japan's a very good example of this, that a lot of the Asian countries spent a lot of political capital to get into the TPP or now the now the CPTPP, now the CPTPP um, and were frustrated when the United States pulled out for obvious reasons because it, it somewhat, I mean, not somewhat, it significantly weakened the, the deal. But even still, I think it's huge. I mean, it, it, there's no underestimating kind of the economic, impact that it will have just because of how much of the world's GDP it comprises. So I think the UK's attempts to get into it are, 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 is a very strong step. But again, particularly given that the United States just can't because of domestic political limitations. And this is not the United Kingdom kind of just, I think it's important to say this is not the United Kingdom just following the United States' wishes or doing what the United States can't do but wants to do. I mean, there's a very clear economic reason for the, United, for the United Kingdom to be more and more engaged in Southeast Asia. I mean, it's part of the world that's gonna be center of the world's economy within a few decades, um, if, not, if not sooner. So engaging it very strongly through trade and, and as well as security and all of that is, is hugely important, not only for kind of strategic purposes, but for simple economic ones for, for Brits themselves. Mm. I mean, that's, that's kind of the crux of it, right? We see there's a massive flow of in, in Chinese investment into Indonesia at the moment, into Indonesian startups and so on. And is, is it still seen as a kind of high growth economies are particularly Indonesia and Vietnam or those are the ones that get the most attention in the UK. But in terms of, of trade and infrastructure investment, is that still the case for other countries? Is the US's strategy the same mirroring the same focus on those countries so for example the philippines does not seem to get that much interest or diplomatic engagement from from the uk interesting question because i think in terms of the private sector indonesia and vietnam do get the most engagement i mean first off just because indonesia is so so big um, which is interesting because indonesia's um, institutions are pretty hard to manage i mean they're pretty hard to navigate for foreign firms it's not the most well-run of countries, whereas Vietnam is kind of a little bit different, where Vietnam is, of course, not as big as Indonesia, um, but it's a pretty well-run country. It's, the, it's pretty institutionalized to the sense where, to the effect of basically Western businesses with a little bit of advice and all that can pretty easily navigate and figure out Vietnam in a way that is not as easy in Indonesia. But even still, my sense is that those two countries are certainly the ones that are, the are of the most interest to the private sector because they seem to be the fastest growing. I mean, Vietnam's economy grew in 2020, which is hugely unusual given kind of COVID and all of that. I think it was China's economy grew and Vietnam's economy grew. And those were the only top 50, I believe, only two of the top 50 economies to have grown in 2020. And that's kind of a real testament to the Vietnamese economy's strength. Beyond that, I mean, of course, Myanmar is now off the kind of off the table for, for, for a number of reasons. I think there is increased interest in Malaysia. Um, the politics in Malaysia are, of course, extremely complicated for, for a variety of reasons. But there's increased interest in Malaysia just because it's, it's so big um, and because Kuala Lumpur is Singapore-like in that it is kind of a financial center for, for, Western, for big Western business and, and all of that. But I think there are other opportunities in some of the lesser developed countries. I mean, Cambodia is certainly not a big market. It's only about 16 million people. 
but there are opportunities there. Um, I think it's it's hard for, to navigate sometimes because some 90% of the country are still subsistence farmers. So you have a pretty small middle class that can actually spend, which is I think part of the reason why Vietnam gets targeted much more. Vietnam does have a more substantial middle class that can buy goods and all of that. I mean, it was a big problem a few months ago where because of supply chain issues, uh, Vietnam actually was lacking like computers and tablets and all that stuff that were produced in China. And that was a huge problem because people have money and they were working from home and they needed to buy computers and tablets, which I think is indicative of how different the Vietnamese economy is from that of Cambodia or Laos of Myanmar, where you don't really have substantial middle classes in those countries that are needing to buy tablets so they can work from home. Very different countries. Um, but yeah, my, my sense is, um, is similar to yours, that Indonesia and Vietnam are certainly the two that get the, that get the most engagement. I would put Malaysia maybe third. And Singapore is in, a, again, a different kind of a different realm because it's a financial center and not a huge population and not one that needs development aid or anything like that. So definitely, I think those three plus, plus Singapore is kind of a, an adjunct in all of that. We've missed perhaps the main pillar of the UK strategy so far, which is military. So we sent our new aircraft carrier over through, through the South China Sea and right into the Indo-Pacific. Again, that's that's it's quite it's quite a big shift in strategy, um, and we we have an existing alliance, military alliance, the Five Powers Defense Alliance. What's the sense there? Because I know my experience is Indonesia is very hesitant about further militarization or further military presence um, in and around itself, but that also doesn't quite tie in with the attitude towards the South China Sea, for example. So again, another complex complex situation. I think this is actually an area where, I mean, of course, this is an area where the ASEAN members are perhaps least united. I mean, they're pretty united on trade and on development that we need more engagement from the West, but on security, they're not particularly united at all, where Vietnam is way more willing to engage the United States and the United Kingdom on security matters than Indonesia is, for example. And that's because Vietnam has a whole history of conflict with China, of kind of continued flare-ups in the South China Sea. The Vietnamese population is hugely kind of, anti-China might be too strong, but China skeptical. And I think the government reflects that to some extent where the Vietnamese, the ruling Vietnamese government is under huge pressure actually to demonstrate that they're standing up to China and having a US or a UK ship dock at, in Vietnam is kind of a helpful signaling mechanism for that. So I, I would say that in navigating security ties with the region, in my opinion, this actually has to come bilaterally because you need to listen to Hanoi, you need to listen to Jakarta to kind of understand what do they actually want here. And I think Vietnam is a place that could certainly, is certainly open to kind of more port visits and more engagement on security matters and all of that. I think, um, i trying to think who else. I mean, Malaysia is a little bit, not too much. They're a little wary about, about uh, alienating China. Singapore certainly is. Uh, Singapore is hugely interested in more security engagement with the West. They intend to really balance uh, China, China's kind of, they tend to balance the hold that China has economically over them by building increased security ties with the West. So I think that the UK can play a role there. So. But I think it's important to note that the, United, that the United Kingdom should not necessarily push countries in the region to develop security ties. If, you, if the UK goes to Indonesia and says, we want to do X, Y, and Z military operation with you guys, and they say no, I think actually accepting that rejection politely 
goes a long way in demonstrating the Southeast Asian governments that London kind of understands them and is taking their concerns seriously rather than pushing them and saying, no, we need to do this, we have to do this now. We'll only alienate, only alienate them, make them feel as if they're being caught between the West and China. So none of these countries are the same in terms of what they want security-wise, um, but Singapore and Vietnam come to mind as ones that would appreciate more UK security engagement. Whereas, I mean, Indonesia, Cambodia, probably lesser so for sure. What about the Philippines? Again, I just say this because they're the nexus of the South China Sea dispute, but I don't hear them much in the conversation about security arrangements. Holding off on, Singapore, on, uh, on the Philippines until after the election. I, I think it's, it goes without saying that whoever is next in charge of the Philippines will almost assuredly be less pro-China than Duterte has been. Duterte's favor of China is, is not reflective of the Philippine view at all. It's very much a personal thing for him. So whoever is next in charge will be more open to security kind of partnerships with the United States and with the United Kingdom. Because I think, the, as we were mentioning, talking about before, the security flares in the South China Sea have had a similar effect on the Filipino population as they've had in the Vietnamese population, where there's really increased public groundswell anger against China for kind of infringing on Filipino sovereignty and all of that. So I don't mean to neglect the Philippines. I think it's such a little hard to predict based on the upcoming election. But I would say almost regardless of who's in power, there will be opportunities for more security engagement with the United States and with the United Kingdom. I mean, the, the US is already a treaty ally, so there are certainly opportunities for the, United, for the United Kingdom to kind of build on that as a US friendly country to kind of complement the, the US's existing kind of presence there in a way that, that helps not only the United States, but also that truly does help the Philippines. Mm, mm. I guess this has been a very wide ranging conversation. We've also missed one, one crucial point, which is soft power. Um, one of the UK's main kind of foreign policy tools. But I guess that kind of feeds into my question, which is in five to 10 years, if that's the kind of time frame we're talking about, what, what does a successful Southeast Asian strategy for the UK look like? What kind of outcomes would we be hoping to see? What kind of shifts would we be hoping to see? What, what should the kind of picture we should be aiming for? Successful, so I mean, I, I've said this over and over again to other people where I think the, the, the bar for success in Southeast Asia is actually much higher for China than I think it is for the West because China has defined success in the region as kind of totally rewriting the regional order in a way that is xenocentric, friendly to kind of more illiberal, less kind of liberal trade, less liberal values, all of that. Whereas the United States and the United Kingdom kind of want to maintain things where they are and shift it incrementally more towards the rules-based order. So my sense here is that success for the United Kingdom is basically just preventing a Sino-centric regional order from taking shape. I mean, I think as long as the UK is providing enough aid and investment and security collaboration and all of that to indicate to countries that even if the United States is volatile and even if the 2024 election sees uh, the election of someone who does not want to engage with Asia at all, the UK will always be here. The UK is more stable. The UK will always be able to provide the cooperation even if the United States is less interested. That's a very important signaling mechanism to show to Southeast Asian countries that they don't have to just go to China for the aid and investment and security cooperation they need because there will always be other, other alternatives, whether that's the UK or Japan or all of that. 
So I, I think success, frankly, just looks like moving the current situation incrementally more towards the West in terms of, I would, I would hope having kind of more of these trade deals that have environmental and standards mechanisms that China's kind of agreements don't, more development and particularly infrastructure development that is more green than China's infrastructure development is, more infrastructure development that frankly is, is better than I think much of the Chinese development is, um, more cooperation, on simple stuff. I mean, education, science, all of that. I mean, the UK is already the most European, the most attractive European destination for, for ASEAN citizens and second in the world only to the United States. Um, and I think those reputational benefits matter. I mean, when you, when you talk to folks in Southeast Asia about the kind of elites, where do they want to send their kids for, for college? It's always Oxbridge, LSE, all of that. And then maybe, maybe the Ivy League comes in, comes in as well. But it's you're not you don't hear that about about France or about Germany or even really about Japan and certainly not so much about about China. So I think it's frankly doing more of what the UK has already been doing, but perhaps I think pushing a little more clearly on the values front of trying to communicate very strongly to countries like Vietnam. We do not seek regime change here. We do not seek to totally overthrow your system. We seek improvements within that system. I think as long as that is made clear and as long as the UK makes kind of apparent to countries in the region that they're not asking them to choose the West over China, they're kind of, we're aware that countries are gonna maintain, maintain ties with both. I do think the UK is in a, a pretty good position, um, possibly even, even a better one than the United States, frankly, given kind of how dysfunctional our, our domestic politics have, have become in recent years. That's a very, a very optimistic note to end on. And um, we've overrun. We've overrun yeah, exactly. But thank you so much for your insights and your time. Um, brilliantly fascinating. And people can find the paper online. It will be linked in the notes below. Thanks again. Mm -hmm.